This podcast is brought to you by the brand new FX PhD Smoke 2013 Fast Forward Training. Download all 10 smoke classes immediately for $99 to get started in checking out this brand new editing and compositing package. Details at fxphd.com. and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour and uh, the VFX show is our, I guess, our review show where we try and discuss visual effects, both past and present, and critique them, hopefully with a positive bent in terms of, uh, I don't know, forwarding the art. But this is certainly um, our chance to express what we think about films new and old. And joined in our VFX uh, session today is Matt. Matt Wallen, how are you? Uh, awesome. Yeah, summer summer break here and uh, live in large. Right, and I'm in the middle of winter <laughs> storms. And we have Ty on the line as well. How are you, Ty? I'm doing very well. And uh, so where are you, Ty? Where are you calling from? I'm right now uh, in the desert. Of, uh, I'm in Chandler, Arizona, where the temperature's already daily over 100 degrees. So I'm learning <laughs> to enjoy the process of being thoroughly baked okay. by the sun. <laughs> well, we're going to be discussing uh, Prometheus. Hallowed uh, Ground, religiously uh, significant film. Um, I'm dead keen to hear what you guys uh, think about this. I've really been obviously looking forward to this film, as many people have. It's uh, probably had one of the biggest build-ups of anticipation, and certainly the blogosphere has gone crazy about it. Um, Let's just check, though. Did any of you guys have any previous relationship with Ridley Scott or uh, uh, intimate relationships with uh, Prometheus? Uh, well, I I did not. I I I think that uh, shortly after um, my time on Avatar, I did get a polite inquiry uh, to submit some work, but that's as far as it went. And in in the past, in the distant past, uh, I haven't had any uh, opportunity to work with Ridley Scott, and I certainly would love the opportunity to do so. Yeah, he's certainly a really interesting filmmaker, and interesting that he's returning to. Uh to his roots, as it were. Um, it's easy to refer to the film as uh, his earliest film as Aliens. It's, of course, Alien was his first film. Aliens was Cameron's film. If we make that mistake, please don't flood us with with complaints. We all are aware and quite uh, markedly so, but it is um, hard when those two first films are so uh, similar. Um, so, Matt, were you a big fan of uh, Alien? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of my top, you know, probably five movies of all time. I mean, it's just it's such a great film. And I will say, uh, you know, going into this movie, like I probably, um, maybe a, a lot like probably a lot of the listeners too, like I was definitely really excited for this movie. I think all the um, sort of the pre release hype like you know i didn't give myself the full media blackout or anything i was willing to look at you know the trailers and featurettes and whatever else that came online and and um you know everything i saw uh sort of prior to the release definitely uh seemed like it was kind of striking all the right notes you know from what you can tell from a trailer right so it was certainly something that i was uh eagerly anticipating so matt how did it deliver (laughs) <laughs> I think that's such a that's such a it's a uh tricky question I guess I, you know it's interesting to me all of the um 
the conversation that I've had with uh, friends and colleagues and stuff sort of after the movie uh, now has been released. And I've been surprised by some of the um, reactions because, uh, you know, I went and saw this on the Friday that it came out uh, just by myself at a theater here in town. And um, it was, uh, I thought it was uh, pretty, pretty great. I really enjoyed uh, the experience in the theater. I think, you know, there are some problems that I have with the movie that I could speak to specifically, but I walked out of the theater feeling like pretty satisfied. Like I, 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 I'm a big Ridley Scott fan. I think, you know, most uh, cinephiles, you know, look at him as being sort of a great, certainly a great visual artist working in cinema and, um, you know, maybe one or two titles uh, of his uh, excluded from the list. But, but I mean, this definitely had the hallmark sort of look of like a Ridley Scott film, like looking like something you've never really seen before, having kind of a, uh, a, a sense of composition and style that was really uh, very, uh, just very, just something that was very creative. It clearly a, a clear vision being articulated visually, and so I don't know. I think I was super excited to see the movie, but I would say that I didn't have really high expectations. I just was um, uh, excited to see it, and so I, I mean, I I enjoyed the film overall. Um, and I can speak to the problems maybe a little bit more. Um, well, we'll circle we back on show. that. Ty, your opinion of the film before we get to the visual effects? Yeah. Uh, well, I I guess I would start by saying I think it's a movie that uh, uh, everyone should see. Uh, you know, if if I think it's a personal film on some level, uh, I've been also surprised with uh, the various um, perspectives and takes on on the film that I've uh, you know talked with my friends and so forth about. Uh, but for me, I would although it didn't generate any sense of. Um, uh, like agitation, it wasn't the kind of disappointment that that angered me. I think I was uh, fairly thoroughly uh, disappointed in the picture by and large, and I think primarily it was because, as brilliant as uh, many aspects were, it felt like half a movie to me, or maybe two thirds of a movie, and I kept wanting it to be the the one third or the half that was kind of speaking to my um, I don't know, science fiction slash uh, artistic slash super inventive, um, you know, uh, expectation uh, versus kind of troubling um, cinematic decision making. So I want to be honest about it, but I don't want anybody to, um, you know, uh, neglect an opportunity to, to take it in. I think um, we're going to have to dis- discuss the film a little before we get to the visual effects. Uh, the show normally runs an hour, and we normally try to get to the visual effects pretty quickly. Um, we will get to the visual effects and in, in a lot of depth, I'm sure. But but I don't think we can discuss this film without discussing some of these things we're alluding to, the discussions we've had with friends. So, Ty, starting with you, you know, basically, was the black goop there to punish us for crucifying Christ, who was, in fact, an engineer? Well, you know, that that take was definitely something that occurred to me. I mean, I've subsequently read some very well-written kind of uh, overviews and, and individuals have, you know, stepped forward with their perspective. Um, I felt if that was the case that, you know, uh, the director was trying to allude to something that 
that I felt should have been been addressed more directly because I think that's a much more interesting um, uh, uh, theme. And and by leaving it elusive, it kind of put it in the background in my mind. It, it put it on a level of a lot of other conjecture. You know, like I I was thinking in the in the initial uh, first half of the film that perhaps the humans were uh, biological terraformers. You know, that they were these this this advanced race would seed its uh, um, DNA onto planets that would then grow life that would you know kind of percolate in a manner that would set it up for them to return and, and take advantage of an of a ecosystem that had been modified by their own biology, which to me was kind of an exciting idea. I thought, wow, you know, that could be uh, like, you know, the shake and bake colony that Jim talked about in Aliens, uh, you know, terraforming on that scale, but maybe done biologically. And when it started to turn to more of a mystic uh, kind of um, I don't know, uh, mystic themes that were more about kind of uh, uh, these um, origin stories. Uh, I was waiting for it to re-inspire my um, uh, imagination. And to me, it it didn't actually ever do that. I felt as though the act, the activity of the aliens, the 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 the, and I, when I say aliens, I mean these um, these large humanoids that are, you know, at the center of the film. Uh, it all seemed kind of uh, maybe this is too strong a word, but it was very nonsensical. The the decisions they made were almost uh, abstract to a point where I didn't care. Uh, the kind of architecture that they. Uh, Created and the way that their ships operated, it, it was seemed to be kind of a, a mishmash of, of concepts that I couldn't quite get a handle on, and it didn't really, uh, for me personally, the, uh, the these, these alien life forms, these alien humanoids, the their technology didn't telegraph any logic that I, that I could hang on to, so it felt contrived to me. It didn't feel like legitimate. Um, technology that would allow them to travel to the stars. It seemed like more of a, of a kind of filigree that was superimposed over, you know, the things that they needed to create in order to travel through space and so forth. I felt, globally speaking, um, I wanted more uh, synergy and more. Uh, I guess I, I want to avoid the word logic because I, I don't think that's what it lacked, but a kind of cohesiveness, uh, other than the filigree angle and this kind of. Um, you know the the Giger kind of um, biometri- biomechanical stuff was cool in the first one, but now we're really looking at it with a lot more, you know, uh, fidelity. And it just seemed to miss the mark for me. You know, there's a scene when David the uh, android is manipulating, uh, you know, the interior of this structure, which it basically looks like it has hieroglyphics or something. And he's like pushing his finger in them and, and little lights are coming on. And it, it reminded me of Star Trek, you know, like the old 60s Star <laughs> Trek and the kinds of things they would do to imply that there was an advanced technology at work. And, and you know, when they happened upon something that exotic and, and this robot can kind of make sense of it, you know, David can make sense of it, you'd think they would just spend, you know, weeks and days and months just deciphering all that could be there but instead it's like oh this opens a door and oh this makes a like you know some playbacks happen and no one ever really stops to go whoa 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 you're actually manipulating this uh gigantic environment with these little hieroglyphs you know i i i I thought that it was muddled uh very often and it, it 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 really kind of uh you know didn't didn't gel for me. Okay, so Matt, should we be searching through 
Judeo-Christian theology or heading to Greek mythology to get our bearings on this one? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's certainly... I, I mean, I think, you know, that clearly is, uh, I think, the intent in terms of, you know, the director and I guess the the writers of the story. They're trying to weave a, you know, complex... Uh, multi-layered narrative that's going to have some, you know, hopefully have some meat on its bones, right? That'll give you some uh, things to think about. I think it's discussed in a lot of the ancillary material that 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 was the intent, you know, was to explore some of these kinds of, um, you know, creation versus evolution mythologies of, you know, like the chariots of the gods kind of thing, you know, like that, um, which I think, you know, is interesting uh, to an, an interesting idea to explore, and it seems like a an interesting and um, potentially uh, you know fun science fiction uh, concept to apply to this world. I think you know for me when I say that I, I think there were certainly some problems with the movie. For me, the problems were largely in um, kind of more mechanical things where I sort of felt as if. Uh, and I, you know, maybe this is a, a secret fantasy that one day will come true. I don't know, but I, it felt like there was maybe forty-five minutes of additional um, exposition and narrative. That, well, in fact, there uh, is. There's didn't. The, the film is literally, I think, forty-five minutes or fifty-five minutes was cut out to get it down. Really, okay. and and well, that that's... may appear in the Blu-ray, according to an interview I heard with. Uh, with one of the actors uh, who I'm trying to. I mean, that now. could. That could be that could really be helpful because I I my feeling was you know going into the film and sitting in the experience of sitting and watching this film not really knowing exactly where it's going but having you know just sort of you know an idea from the what little I had sort of seen and read before its release sitting in the theater and watching it my my feeling was that the um the sort of first quarter to first third of the movie I felt like we were almost like in this like marathon race like moving through these moments in time where the story was being told at such a rapid clip i would i would really agree with that yeah it yeah, felt to me exactly. wise it felt it felt so strange and so odd and i and you know what and i think that what really I missed, set, in that? I missed in that mm. the moments that let me really care about these characters and have more absolutely about absolutely. them i missed I missed caring about anyone like I cared about Ripley so that when there was the Prometheus version of Get Away From Her, You Bitch, I was cheering. It was mm-hmm. much more like, yeah, there was a race to move the story along because yep. Yep. it almost felt like, and I'm not saying this for a second happened, but it almost felt like someone had said, the audience is there to get scared and there are going to be some aliens, so stop mucking around and let's get on with the aliens. Let's get there. And there must have been scenes um, when the father is discovered to be on the ship where people were reacting to that, like, what the heck, he was here all the time kind of stuff that didn't advance the story, that uh, must have been cut because the idea was, you know, the aliens are coming, they want a good scare, let's move the story along, let's not hang around here for an hour before we even get there. I I would say that, and I... Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I think, too, though, along those same lines, Mike, I think the other thing that I think the movie suffers from and I think makes it feel clumsy and clunky and presents a lot of the kind of sort of editorial issues in terms of pacing of the plot and unfolding of the story is that when you go back and you look at the original Alien, uh, the 79 Alien, I mean, it's an, it's an incredibly simple movie. 
mm. in a lot of ways. Like the the actual plot and narrative, it's not very complex. I mean, it's a monster movie, right? It's essentially, you know, the the quote I've always read, right, which I think is pretty accurate, is it's basically just a super expensive B horror movie, right? That's and ten little I think idiots. The over. Right. But but then you you look at what you know when you we were talking earlier about and I like the thing that maybe we can put this uh in the show notes or something but there's that long um uh, uh citation or, or or blog post or whatever that I think maybe we all read that <laughs> maybe some people, some of the people listening read this too but where the guy goes into all the sort of judeo-christian symbolism and you know the idea that um you know Christ was an engineer and all this kind of stuff, which is, you know, certainly interesting. But I mean, it was, and people were saying like, well, look, if you need to have this whole blog post to explain the movie, then the movie's failed on some level. But what I was going to say was that, you know, pacing wise, they want to get you to the aliens. They want you to be scared um, and, you know, kind of give you this, this thrill ride. But they're trying to tell an infinitely more complex and sort of nuanced but Matt, narrative. Can I, can I just loop back on that point you made? Because you, you just sort of mm. passed it really quickly. That if you need to go to a blog, the film has failed. And I would actually pull up there and say, it's been a long time since we've had a film that invited a really good late night discussion. red wine discussion. Um, and isn't that yeah. what we wanted? Isn't that we wanted it not to just be... Well, a dumbass action piece with chicks yeah, yeah, yeah. and underwear. No, let me let me be clear. Let me be clear. Like, I mean, I you know I love movies that make me think and sit and yeah, question. I know, and I know that you do. For all, you know, the idea of the idea of all of us, you know, getting together and you know having a beer and like sitting and talking about the ins and outs of this movie and the possible meanings. I mean, that's so much fun, right? I mean, that's what makes for a I think a great film. And I think this film was certainly trying to do that. Um, so I, but I think that there are people who. You know whose opinion I respect as well, who I think are really gifted, you know, artists and filmmakers and stuff. And I've heard a couple friends of mine say, um, you know, that kind of comment that look, if you need this ancillary material to explain the the film, then you know it's not doing its job. Like if that's not clear, I, and I, I think, I'm you know, I am surprised a, though that I here's the thing. I totally agree with you about the fact that it was rushed and that we didn't have enough character development. What I found odd is this idea that never occurred to some people watching the film about these overtones of uh, the religious nature of the material and and neither the Greek mythology of Prometheus, who's obviously constantly having his stomach exploded, right. though from the outside coming in <laughs> um, over and over again, which I thought was just so funny, um, but also the idea that uh, there were these links to... Uh, the perhaps terraforming Earth or biologically forming Earth, and then mm-hmm. deciding that that Earth had done something wrong and it needed to be cleansed, and then something going wrong, and and the religious stuff, right down to the fact that there were more than one reference to her uh, crucifix uh, cross around her yeah. neck, and right to the yeah, point I mean, that, that, was pretty that David says to her, "Don't you still believe after everything you've said?" And I think I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, "Well, who made them? Kind of who made the engineers?" Right, um, right. And so the the thing is, you've come to meet your maker. I mean, this theme of meeting our maker, and then you know, why did they do it, and why did you persecute us, and why did you want to destroy us? All of that stuff clearly plays into a sequel. But more than that, felt like it was raised at a very strong narrative level. It wasn't like, hey, did you notice she had a crucifix around her neck? And she holds it up at one point and like discusses it in length. Um, so yeah. I was sort of surprised. People said, man, I didn't get that. It's like really? <laughs> I well, I think uh, I think on that point, 
what I would propose is is that because so many elements in my mind were shown to be the potential for a further importance. You know, there was there were moments where uh, you were given tidbits or the breadcrumbs, as it were, were being uh, dropped. And there was this sense that, that there was going to be this gelling, you know, that you were going to get some insight and that there was going to be these kind of culminations or the puzzle pieces were going to lock into place. Um, I think that for me, the symbolism, the Christianity symbolism, the crucifix and the, the robot putting it in a little cup and bringing it and she, where is it? You know, it's very front and center. It didn't ultimately become a linchpin for me. Um, I think that uh, just not to back up too far, but with regards to a comparison between Alien and Prometheus, I think that there was a, getting to Matt's point and uh, about the te- the pacing and the quick the quick tempo. Mm. I mean, you can do that kind of filmmaking and still bring to it a certain kind of um, I don't know um, uh, calm. It sounds paradoxical, but you can move quickly uh, along and still have a certain cadence that allows for people to integrate what they're being told into the larger matrix of the picture. And for example, just to make a little bit of a, uh, an, uh, an argument along those lines, if you look at the way that, that, that um, Ridley handled the, uh, the crew of, uh, of the Nostromo, um, there, was this, uh, there was this almost documentary style dialogue that was uh, you know, uh, uh, quite a bit about the 70s filmmaking style, that cinema verite thing where you had kind of ad libs and you had this group of actors that kind of felt like they were just, you know, it didn't matter what the detail was. You were getting a sense of them as individuals. Yep. And I found that completely lacking in Prometheus. Uh, there was such a sledgehammer pace with the dialogue and the characters being on point and moving to the next point that I felt a little bit um, as though they were synthetic or not. They weren't as you know, endearing or realistic. I didn't get a sense of like true um, subconscious struggle or subconscious longings. Um, it seemed all very veneer to me. Now uh, that that was a cinematic decision, I assume, um, and it was written that way, I assume. But it made things that were symbolic more less relevant to me, less hard felt. So I couldn't really see if. The Christianity element was thrown in there just to tie religious concepts, you know, from like we have religion, they have religion, or, you know, then the only real reference is that 2,000 years ago we did something wrong, which of course would be close to the time of the crucifixion, and that kind of notion wasn't really, you know, illuminated with enough, I guess, um, substance that it was plausible. I mean, it kind of was put up there with a lot of other things that were plausible in the moment, but, you know, they also said that that you know, they were building weapons of mass destruction and they were smart enough to get away from their own planet to do it on this other planet so that they could protect their, you know, the people of their race or whatever. But then they can't control it and it got a hold of them. And that was an interesting angle that I thought was kind of contemporary and that we're making weapons of destruction. And so I thought, well, is it about that? You know, or maybe it's about, you know, you can't control nature or the whole Prometheus myth. I mean, I think there were several. Uh, themes all presented with kind of an equal synthetic quality to my mind, and it was very difficult to really understand what the characters even the even the um, the old man i mean what was his ultimate driver um, you know what it was re- other than power and fear of death i mean you know i couldn 't really get a handle on why he wanted to talk to him either except to well, have his life uh, yeah I think Wayland was trying to meet his maker because he thought they would have the answer to him not dying and with all his money 
what else was he going to do? But here's the thing. I think that, and it's just my personal opinion, I think this film ranks as really good but not great. And the way it could get to great is if they restored 30 minutes of cut material that gave us a lot of back thing and stopped it being so pacey. And if there was a sequel that went on to pick up things that had been laid out in this one and seen as a com- as a sort of companion piece, the two films made, you know, a marvellous kind of um, huge arcing story because, you know, there's nothing wrong with a film not answering all the questions. But I think you're right, Ty, that there's a lot of questions here and you're not quite sure which path to go down. And so as a consequence, you don't get a an overriding, that gives me food for thought so much as it is I need to try and work out if I can make any sense of this, which is a sort of, I guess, a slightly different um, issue. Yeah, I think, I know, well, yeah, I think that's the thing that's interesting too, though, is sorry, it, doesn't, it doesn't provide any answers, right? I mean, I think that's what's sort of interesting about the movie too, is that it just, it poses a lot of questions, right? And I think, you know, if you're going to this and you're you're hoping to get some salient and significant answer to, you know, any of the questions that are posited, like, I think that's kind of the part that... In, to me, is sort of the part that triggers the conversation, right? That we're having now. It's the it's the it's the lack of a definitive answer. It's not pat at the end. Like you're not really sure, you know. What, but it's why also did they do this it's it's not as happen? stupid or as completely senseless as it's being somehow mocked to be in certain circles. In certain circles, it's become it's becoming hip to kind of make out like Prometheus is a mess, and I don't think it's a mess. I, but I do agree with the points you guys are making. But I think to imply that um, there's just a ton of questions and it makes no sense and it's all stupid would be to turn an audience member away that potentially could enjoy the experience. I, I do agree it has right. flaws, but we didn't like, as a population, didn't like Blade Runner when it came out. Um, now, you might have argued that was a studio cut, and we certainly took a while to appreciate a number of other films. Whether this can be re-edited in some way that would solve some of these issues i certainly live in hope but let's swing on to the visual effects uh because even those critics that have claimed that the film is uh is odd and that you know why go on a an even a journey into outer space where you're not adequately briefed or you haven't had good psychological profiling done of people that are going to crack at the first instant I, I i really didn't want to get bogged down in that what i want to get into is uh what even those people would tend to agree is some spectacularly good visual effects. I don't know about you guys, I've yet to read a criticism of this film that was centred around things looking hokey, fake or cheesy. Um, and I think that that is... You haven't read anything like that? I mean, I'm pretty sure you haven't. I'm sure mm-hmm. I would have seen it. No. no. The work of MPC, Weta and, uh, and Fuel in Sydney the three primary houses um i think is spectacularly good of course the film was shot in stereo on epics and uh so it's a it's a really interesting film from many technical aspects but let's discuss it just from a pure visual effects point of view if we can and and i'm going to just do it by houses if that's all right we're just going to work through the three main areas that those three facilities kind of worked on uh Mm -hmm. because it's a good breakdown of the film Sometimes we do this chronologically, sometimes we do it by scenes, but in this particular case, MPC kind of handled the space work um, and uh, Weta kind of handled the engineers and a bunch of stuff uh, in addition to that. And Fuel handled a bunch of stuff, but handled the uh, holographs and the the map room. So let's start with MPC and the space work. And from the trailer, I was just 
really impressed when it's so hard these days to produce what is kind of an original space shot. Matt, didn't, did you not sort of just feel that we had some really nice, good-looking space stuff? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think you know, with the with regards to the background, the you know, the overall composite. I mean, I think the design and model uh, of the ship itself, you know, sort of that insect-like uh, craft, I thought was just so great. And then uh, they were doing all kinds of stuff um, in the comp that I thought was great, where they had, you know, I mean classic sort of comp tricks but where they had sort of the chromatic aberrations and stuff like that coming off uh the edge of the screen as the light comes into uh view and i thought uh yeah that just the the total look of the stuff in space as well as the um, really kind of the one that you see over and over again in the first trailers of the the prometheus coming in and landing on the ground the both the you know the um the thrusters and the, the conical shape of the thrust and the uh, sort of the optical kind of like the ring that starts to appear in the blue in the thruster as well as the uh, the dust coming up and the um, the sense of weight and scale. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, that work was, uh, you know, untouchable. I thought it just was absolutely beautiful. And Ty, they did a lot of work on the environments as well, right down to sort of mapping out uh, stuff from Iceland where the shoot was. Um, did you feel feel like you're in an artificial environment in the sense of a digital compositing sense? No, no. I, I actually thought, uh, I agree with Matt. I think that the the work was exemplary. It was really it was really fresh and really brilliantly executed. And um, uh, just to jump to one of the parts that, that I really loved uh, a great deal was the the whole opening of the ground of the planet once the the, the derelict mm-hmm. ship is activated and the scale uh, the scale of the landing, as Matt uh, pointed to, is awesome. I mean, I think they must have studied the shuttle launches and stuff to get that whole sense of you know exploding gases and and, and debris blowing up. But when the the planet was opening, and we've all seen that back to when we were kids and watching Thunderbirds go and stuff like that where a big giant thing is supposed <laughs> yeah. to open up and it never feels real but boy this this felt epic and huge and 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 the crashing of the spaceship is abstract and kind of uh i don't know it did have a nonsensical piece to it because you know no one could run out of the way of the rolling log but it was so brilliantly uh executed in the color sense well with all that muted kind of you know that planet mm-hmm. surface that looked all carbon, and and the way the smoke was all you know really really affecting the environment and the lighting and stuff and the scale. It was that that sequence was was just knocked me out. That that was an, an awesome uh, an awesome piece. Yeah, and I the thought- environment stuff they. Oh, sorry. The, I was just going to say the environment stuff you were talking about. I think is really interesting too, because I guess uh, one of the things that they were doing both in the pre-production art and then you know something that Ridley Scott really wanted was, you know, they got the the sort of volcanic plane. It was all shot, um, as you said, in Iceland on the the uh, Hekla uh, National Park at the Hekla volcano, and uh, so all the the ground is actually you know volcanic rock. It's actually part of what's actually there, and then. Um, the the walls of this sort of canyon where you know they're coming in for the landing and he in the uh idris ilba or whatever uh he tells him to go through that uh opening there and they he says oh god doesn't build in straight lines or whatever and they land in that canyon and mm. the, the walls of that canyon were actually based on i can't remember the name of it now but some canyon in jordan and so it's kind of interesting to think about this volcanic plain um, you know, in a really interesting landscape, a place like uh, Iceland, and then uh, you know these these uh, rock walls sort of lining this um, uh, chasm or this sort of trench, I guess, uh, 
you know, and combining those two things and getting the color to match um, so that these sort of Jordanian uh, kind of rock faces and cliff faces really sat in and felt like they were all part of the same environment um, created a really uh, dynamic world that felt uh, very real. And I thought that they did a great job with that. Yeah, MPC had some really good uh, tools there. It uh, had its uh, fun and element analysis stuff for orchestrating a lot of the destruction effects, the uh, the breaking up of the ground for the uh, the end sequence that Ty referred to. The other thing is they were using uh, Flowline, which is an interesting thing. They've had it for a while, I think, since about 2005. But this is effectively the fluid sims stuff or the hydro um, uh, simulation and rendering from Scanline. Uh, and in about 2005, MPC licensed that. So, flow, so we often talk about Flowline, but normally in terms of the company that invented it, the other mm-hmm. uh, company uh, rendering stuff being Scanline. And I think it's interesting. MPC uh, clearly is invested in some really strong technology, and it's therefore delivering at both a technical level and at a um, at an artistic level, which is good to see at that balance. Because I do think a bunch of these shots. I was just impressed with, as you say, like the design, the composition, the the sheer um, look of them. As much as I also couldn't fault them on a technical level, because I thought the uh, the simulations and the work looked so good and so realistic. Um, the other thing MPC totally. did before we just leave MPC is uh, a section that was quite different to that. It was the um, attack of the giant killer worm. Uh, you know, the mm. small little. Um, I don't know if we ever had a name for that uh, kind of cobra-like uh, worm thing, did we, that uh, attacked, uh, is it Holloway, I think? Um, but anyway, uh, the, uh, the... I guess they called it the, uh, the hammerpede in the production is what they referred to right. it as. Because that, that was certainly scary for me. I mean, I was literally, I know that he was an idiot for leaning forward, and I was yelling, trying to explain to him that he should lean back, because not a good idea to lean forward to uh, any kind of culture of face-hugging creatures, not that he knew that. <laughs> Surprisingly, he, he just, didn't him. He just wanted to befriend it and give it yeah. a little petting. Like, and I know that to... you can criticize the basilicans <laughs> out of that from a plot point of view, but from a you know thrill-ride point of view, it was exactly the kind of uh, scary yeah. thing that you wanted to get out of the film. I think, in a sense, the filmmakers and certainly the visual effects artists had to walk some really interesting tightropes here to mix my metaphors. They had to not fall into the realm of, oh my God, we're creating the map room, the pilot's chair, the hallowed ground of, you know, alien. Oh my God, we just have to have an orgy of shots of this because it's so cool that we're getting to make it again digitally. And, and as an audience, we would be like, yeah, what are we looking at? We're just going over these same shots because you're so impressed to be able to recreate them. And that we had to have this problem of we need to move the, the plot forward. We also wanted it to have deep symbolism and we also wanted to have something that was original and we wanted to not, you know, waste time and get to the aliens, but we wanted to not just have, you know, female leads running around in their underwear being chased by bugs, feeling like, well, this is something we'd all seen, you know, years before. That sequence, therefore, is of interest because it was a good scare moment. And I thought that the evolution of the bugs, obviously it's very rapid and we we understand that that, that this... Uh, is an odd thing about these aliens. They tend to grow real quick. <laughs> but... But it it kind of built up and built up pretty well, and at no point did it seem hokey to me. It did seem suitably evil, and for the moments that I had my eyes open, pretty gory as it was going down his throat. Do you agree, Ty? Yeah, I mean, um, 
I think it it tied nicely to the uh, you know to the Alien original Alien film of seventy uh, nine, and that you know it, it establishes that there's acid in the blood. Correct. I mean that yep. that's what melts the space helmet, and you know it's need to get in the host in some way. Uh, um, I thought that the 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 biological effect, you know, the the way that it was animated and the way that it looked and uh, the way that they dealt with it cinematically was was very nice. Um, and yeah, right, it had that kind of um, almost because uh, we did a show on it before. You know, it had that John Carpenter the Thing uh, kind of vibe at one point, and I thought that was effective hybridizing of, of those two kind of genres in a sense that kind of graphic gore that's really you know uh, biological and expected but at the same time in the context of the storyline and kind of taking it from one place to the next one of the things i really liked about the 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 way in which it was rendered i think there was a combination of some practical elements but i believe most of it was was computer generated and i thought they did a really great job where it really had this look of this kind of almost like a one of those like translucent you know like a sea creature or something and you could see like the arteries and veins and organs and stuff kind of sitting just below the skin and it really had this almost like a almost like a pearlescent kind of uh uh you know slick and you know that kind of wet skin kind of quality to it and it really gave it a it it felt very much like something that was you know truly alive uh in the in the scenario i mean i think the 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 rendering quality the the materials um you know, and just the animation of it, I thought was just really—it uh, was really spooky for sure. <laughs> it's funny because I would have said in a, in any other film uh, that they did a really good job on that creature, but I've, I actually think the rendering of that creature looked inferior uh, at an incredibly infinitesimal level to the rendering of the creature that was done by Weta, in particular the rendering they did of the engineer. Uh, himself at the opening sequence and uh, and later, I think that the quality of uh, skin texture, subsurface scattering, etc., that Wet has managed to perfect, I felt almost sorry to have anyone else try and do any uh, skin flesh in the same movie. Uh, so I'm interested that you liked it because I actually thought that it it was okay, it was good. I mean, in any other film, I would have said it was great, but it just got showed up by just how spectacularly good. Weta's uh, skin and alien flesh was in both the the uh, the med bed or med pod scene and also the opening sequence with the engineer. So so let's discuss that because I I've not seen as good a I haven't seen better I don't think uh, skin and stuff than we saw on the uh, the engineer the the intercutting between the prosthetic live action actor and the digital copy mm-hmm. of him on the rocks in the waterfall in Iceland and again later in the end of the film and also just that darn creature coming out of her womb on the med bed uh, they were spectacular would you agree with that time yeah I thought that the uh, biological stuff was all impressive uh, and if I could I would I would jump to the 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 final sequence where you had the engineer battling uh this tentacled creature that originated inside of uh, of the doctor um uh, i thought that the 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 strength of the tentacles and the the way that they dealt with the animation of those appendages and the muscularity of those systems it just it really looked like underwater photography of like a real octopus or a real squid doing something that you know to be real because you know that it looks uh, consistent and and it, it operates in totality. 
but oftentimes, you know, tentacles are one of those things that in the history of cinema can often look really, uh, you know, look awful and not, not really ever be believable. And here I was totally, you know, um, kind of mesmerized by uh, the the quality of the animation, the way that they got this, the the context of the, uh, con, you know, the contracting muscles and the struggle between these two characters. I just I thought it was it was something I hadn't seen before, and, and it really showcased uh, a kind of a new biology to me uh, in, a, in an exciting way. I I loved the uh, the idealized human that is the engineer, but I particularly loved how I couldn't pick the difference between we moved. Um, between the live-action guy on the rock and obviously the digital double version of the same guy, Matt, did you feel that that, uh, especially the opening section, was was a seamless match? I mean, I just couldn't fault it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I think the only thing uh, in uh, that I would say about the engineer uh, uh, overall, from sort of a a design point of view, uh, which has nothing to do with the effects, and I think really. Yeah, the seamless kind of rendering of the character and the subsurface stuff was great. I think the only thing I would say is I just I wasn't ever really sure. Like in that opening scene when he sort of he disrobes, he does have this kind of um, like it's it's sort of this human form, right? We recognize it's a bipedal character. It's kind of like uh, you know like us, but then he has this. Uh, had like I don't know if it was like I wouldn't even say it was like a six pack. He had like a twelve pack, you know, abs <laughs> or whatever, right? You know, it's like they not and I and I wasn't I didn't quite understand what the anatomical structure was of form of the character and and uh, that was something that was more of a design issue. That was something that I found kind of um, just visually confusing. But I thought that the uh, that opening scene where he drinks the uh, whatever the uh, the toxin and uh, starts to sort of crumble and decay. And uh, just the look at that, standing on the, that was at the, um, I think it's Godafoss, which is one of the largest uh, waterfalls in Europe, I guess, right? But, but I mean, I, I guess the Iceland they consider part of Europe. But um, uh, it looked, it looked uh, you couldn't tell the, the difference between the two. I mean, it cut perfectly together. I also thought that uh, Fuel did a really good job with the holograms, um, and I, one of the reasons for that is it's hard to communicate a future technology and then make it not look uh, either too retro or too futuristic so it looks unbelievable. I mean, quite frankly, if you'd had perfect uh, retina-level displays off my iPad in Star Wars... I'd have said that looks really fake because it just looks like a you know a picture. It doesn't look like it's it's what it should be. I wanted imagery on screens back then, you know, in '77 to look a bit sort of wonky and a bit you know like what I was sort of extrapolating from a computer screen. Similarly, if you just had perfectly rendered holograms of the engineers walking down that in no way looked anything but photoreal, we'd all say, well, that just didn't kind of look right as a hologram. So they had to find a broken up effectively the VHS dubbed version that's been around for 2,000 years um, of the hologram that would say to the audience, yeah, this is a hologram. Yeah, it's going to break up and it's not going to be perfect, but you kind of get the idea. If you had the kind of technology these guys had, I'm sure they could have actually come up with a hologram that was in colour, for example, but but that's sort of not (laughs) the point. So it's a really difficult design problem. You need to something that looks kind of somewhat alien tech, 
not so advanced that I don't know what I'm looking at. And you don't want to have to have a lot of exposition with the audience um, having to understand what they're looking at either. And, you know, that bit where it runs through David and it kind of wisps around him a bit, there's this sort of sense of the walls generating it. And Yeah. Um, you know, it's a hard, hard problem, I think, from a design point of view. Matt, you want to tackle that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I thought it, it looked really great. I thought the Fuel did great work with that. I mean, I think, you know, that that environment and that space is one that, sort of the the control room of the you know the the you're not the big horseshoe thing is a familiar space that we've seen a number of times before right in the previous alien film and the idea of the space jockey and so being in that environment is one that was really interesting i think you know the time made a good point about sort of the the controls in the weird like sort of like uh chair it does sort of look like this big wurlitzer organ or something when they first (laughs) sit down at it but i did think that the uh the holographic effects um were really great in particular the the star map and i think what one of the things that they and it kind of had this almost jellyfish like quality to it and i thought that one of the neat things that they did was um you know when you look at the uh there's a i think you guys had in your on your site there's a breakdown that fuel provided you guys that kind of shows some of those bits and pieces and i thought one of the neatest layers in that breakdown of the holographic effect was there's a um kind of a like a a smoky kind of nebula pass that's inserted in there as well and i think that really brings and adds a lot to the um to the overall texture and feel of that space and environment when the um the map is kind of turned on and the the other thing uh, with regards to the holograms that i really liked and it i still don't know if i totally understand you know what it was and why it looked the way that it did but i but i i did love the way it looked because it was so degraded was the uh, the holographic projections of the um the engineers with their sort of elephant, uh, you know, apparatus uh, helmets on, running through the uh, the hallway and running to the door. I thought the look of that, where it felt like it was kind of grainy and sort of broken up, and it was like not fully, you know, it was it wasn't fully three dimensional. It had kind of a it was three D, but it was almost like you know like what you'd get like projecting um, just on one side of an object, right? Where it felt like the backside was almost hollow and it was kind of coming apart as they were moving. I thought the the look of that and the kind of the the chaos of that uh, visually was, I thought, really exciting and was a, a really neat um, kind of degraded technological look, um, yeah. both in terms of art direction and execution. I thought it was really, uh, really something. And I wished I, I kind of wish there had been a little bit more of that. Even Paul Butterworth, the VFX supervisor, and uh, he's an incredible designer. And we were talking about that, and he described it as that they were meant to be like security recordings. You know, if you have security mm-hmm. recordings today, sure. you wouldn't put it's kind of low HD res. cameras, yeah, recording <laughs> everything at full res. And so, yeah, so it was already like kind of the low resy thing that's being recorded everywhere all the time, and then it's been degraded. And I, and I loved that. Um, I also think I did too. Yeah. And another interesting fact that uh, Paul shared with us was that you know the um, the hologram in the ship where they're looking at the probes and they're mapping out the pyramid effectively. Apparently, that was much smaller, and Ridley loved it so much that he wanted to make it much bigger. So, they used to go in with a uh, circular saw and cut the table in half and make it physically bigger on the stage so that they would have a bigger space to walk around uh, to then um, put a bigger hologram. And, and see, there was a moment there that I thought was the old alien that I wanted more of when they were just sort of hanging with a blanket around them, looking at that thing, kind of chatting, and... 
for me, that was incredibly successful. That felt like what I wanted more of in the film, where it wasn't yeah. fast-paced. It was somebody just watching some text scanning, going, this is just going to take a while and I'm just going to sit here and and there's not much to do, um, as opposed to everything being instantaneous. So I loved that both at the technical level because I thought the hologram looked good and, uh, and, and it was sort of a genuine need of why you'd want a hologram. You know, I mean, if you were mm-hmm. just sort of had a map of where we were and where they are. There's no reason to have that as a three-dimensional hologram, but when you're actually mapping out a space, it kind of made sense. Yes, I would want to be able to see how the levels are above each other and around them, and this is a good way of kind of doing it. So, um, and that was... Well, and it gave the the shape of that room, you know, that we had seen in 79. It gave the shape of that room and the contours and the sort of aesthetic of that room kind of a... It gave it a purpose and a meaning beyond, you know, this kind of just sort of cathedral-like space that also had this, you know, purpose that, you know, we, we only got to see in this film. So I thought that was, it was an interesting um, solution to, you know, if we're going to go back and revisit that space, it was an interesting thing to, 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 to do in there, and I thought it was well executed. They, to, to do the map room, of course, they needed to LIDAR scan the set, and the set was done until about halfway up the wall, and then from the rest it went all the way up to the top. I just thought it was funny that, that you would LIDAR scan the set so that you could put a bunch of lasers scanning the set in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's actually something that I think is just worth mentioning overall with this film. I mean, I actually picked up uh, just today, actually came uh, from Amazon. I got the the Prometheus, the Art of the Film, the Mark Salisbury book with a forward by Ridley Scott. And it's a really, actually a really nice uh, full color production of that shows all kinds of production photographs as well as uh, design work and uh, concept paintings and thumbnail sketches and a bunch of Ridley Graham storyboards as well. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about this film, and it's also kind of a hallmark uh, that we talked about in the, the sort of retro show on Alien and Aliens, um, it's kind of a hallmark of of the franchise, at least for, for Ridley Scott, is that you know they built so many huge sets in this film. And I think from a visual effects point of view, I think that's really interesting because I think it changes the to- in totality, the dynamic. Like if you go back and look at, um, you know, there's a, there's a great picture, uh, that floated around the net for a while of George Lucas, right? And it, it was a, it was two pictures of George Lucas. And one is sort of this famous picture of him, I think in the archives at the ranch or something, right? Where he's, he's standing around all these models of like the death star yeah. and all these spaceships and stuff. And then, um, there's another picture of him working on the, the Phantom Menace or something, you know, like I think the uh, episode one, and it's just him standing in front of a giant green screen, you know, and it's sort of like the, you know, it means kind of a, a cheap gag, but at the same time, it's kind of an interesting um, uh, supposition, I guess, of like this, this new uh, era. And I think it's really interesting for a guy like Ridley Scott, he goes back and he's delving into this genre and working in a very heavy effects laden film but still uh, does as much as he can practically. And I think it does a lot to help the actors. And I think actually in the long run, it does a huge amount to also help with uh, the visual effects and the sort of seamlessness of the visual effects um, in the film. Yeah, I I do think um, that sometimes people can go overboard with just how 
so they can put stuff on in a practical location and really it's a bit of a joke because you're going to have to digitally remove it completely because it's really never going to cut it. Um, and that is often the case, I think, with uh, some creature work that, you know, you're going to try and do it with a um, sort of right. effectively a puppet right. and it really never works that well and then just makes well work for the poor bloody engineers. But everyone comes, no, no, we did it all in camera. Like that's somehow intrinsically better. But I do agree with you, really extensive sets must be tremendously beneficial to the actors rather than extensively uh, covering everything with green and then just having one doorway that's the only thing they can lean on. Um, and uh, from a film geek kind of point of view, of course, you love to see that stuff. Um, I mean, we had that here in the... We haven't really discussed it, the, the med pod, med bed sequence. Mm-hmm. There was a mixture of a an actual articulated puppet, effectively, and a digitally replaced thing that came out of her stomach of course we know that the incision on her stomach and the inside of her stomach and the gore that associated it most of that's got to be digital because obviously you're not going to cut the actress but um i will say that they did a pretty good job in having the thing that was prosthetic not looking rubbery and plastic and the stuff that was looking digital looking like it matched back to the baby alien though as i said before i screamed like a girl during this sequence and consequently didn't have my eyes open for much of it one point i actually took off not only my 3d glasses but my actual glasses um in a hope to uh, to nullify some of the uh, excruciating uh, uh, agony i was in ty do you want to discuss that idea of having practicals on set and and maybe that's yeah i mean it's again it's an interesting throwback to uh, our conversation about alien i mean you we all talked about that night and i think most of the documentaries about the original picture the 79 alien is that uh you know the kind of uh, physicality of having the chest buster sequence for example with you know blood spurting and affecting the actors in uh, in a in a very you know in real life in a real way has a certain intrinsic value um, and not knowing exactly how, um, you know, they broke out the uh, this um, dock pod uh, sequence, I have to imagine that uh, at the very least, it, having a real space that has the actress in it, I'm sure they took the glass off and so forth for, uh, for shooting purposes, but um, I have to believe that... Uh, you know that's a that's a big plus uh, to motivate uh, the the performances and uh, to to make it all make sense. Um, and you know I think that going back to what Matt's point is is that uh, real sets have a very real effect on everyone who's in them. The 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 people putting the lights up, the people running the camera, the director himself, and uh, it is a part of you know cinema that I think uh, will always have value. And it'll probably be a question of you know what what kinds of sequences best uh, are expanded uh, by having how much of real stuff there. Uh, and of course, that's not a new concept. I mean, the history of film is always with partial sets and you know uh, pieces here and there but um i did get a sense that uh the integration of uh you know of the environments and the play of the camera across what were obviously real sets with real people is always you know it does ground the picture in a certain way and um you know i thought that again here it was it was all definitely handled really well well executed just as an aside elizabeth shaw the character gets into that pet pod thing to obviously do a c-section and i assumed that most of the shots of her abdomen were 
computer generated by Weta because it's writhing up and down like there's a baby inside. And I'm guessing you guys probably thought the same thing. What you may not have known is that Naomi, the actress, actually trained to be a belly dancer for another film. And so a lot of those <laughs> movements she awesome. actually can do with her stomach, um, <laughs> making it look like there's something inside, which I, I just thought was hysterical. That- that kind of like uh, C-section of the sort of the trilobite kind of character or whatever. I thought that whole set segment uh, and this idea of this p- entirely computer-controlled robotic surgical bay, I thought was such a great sequence in the film. It was a nice kind of set piece and event to have happen. And it was so creepy, disturbing, and oddly enjoyable at the same time. <laughs> like it was, such a, it was such a satisfying sequence that was so... Um, I don't know. I just, I, I just really thought that was, that was, it was so cool. It was so, um, you know, uh, it's so funny because I, I, I was, I was actually trying not to go here. So now I have to because of what you just said. You know, I grew up around. My mother was a surgical nurse, and I grew up around uh-huh. doctors and stuff. And and I found quite honestly that whole sequence to be kind of out of character with the rest of the movie. It was so over the top in its graphic quality. I mean, you do not do anything in a human body in any kind of operation where you make that size of an incision, uh, especially with some advanced robotic technology, which we actually have today. It would have been the opposite. It would have been the most tiny of holes, and it would have been done with anesthesia of some variety, and it became just a horror show in my mind, especially when the big stapler came in and put like one-inch brads across her <laughs> abdomen that then were on, the, on her for the rest of the film. I mean, that's an example uh, of something in the picture where, uh, you know, bel- uh, regardless of its execution, I thought it was, it went way into a, a, a level uh, yeah, you know, talk about the John Carpenter effect. I mean, it was so over the top to me that I actually thought I'd just, you know, stepped stepped into another reality for another film. Um, um, can I? I yeah. I mean, I I not good with medicine in the first place. Uh, in the real world, yet alone placenta sacs of uh, aliens he ripped out of women's wombs. But I will say this: they they I do think they kind of. I mean, I agree it's a ridiculously large incision, but I do think they kind of managed to do it without being. Uh, how can I put this? It wasn't sensationalistly sexist in the sense that it wasn't just an excuse to show Naomi naked and it didn't feel to me like it was just a play for... um, I do agree it was a good action piece and I do agree it was a bit ridiculous, but um, look, we were talking to Martin Hill, the VFX supervisor from Weta, Mm -hmm. and and, and his exact quote was, "When when that previous came in, our jaws hit the floor. We just couldn't believe they wanted to go for it and do something this graphic which I thought was a classic comment. Um, it was <laughs> obviously over the top. But, you know, there would be some part of the audience that would just want some really good gore. And uh, that was at least original uh, in the sense that when she was trying to get out from underneath it, um, you know, when she was trying to make her way by sliding out from underneath it, I really just thought that I was uh, they'd, they'd gone over the top and there's blood splattering everywhere. And it was just... Um, yeah. Well, again, I mean, it, it, this is... A, I, I think it, it would be great to... This is a film where to have a beer and talk about it would be awesome because there was a lot of nods to the original materials. I mean, you know, the yeah. head coming off of David was just... It was in Jim's yeah. movie, it was in Ridley's movie, and it just plays the, you know, you're waiting for that. And it delivers. And I think well, the chest buster you know this was the equivalent of that uh, although i will stand my ground in regards to that it brought the film to an extreme kind of uh nonsensical place in my mind that i had a little total trouble recovering from i did well i did think Ty, it was, it was so great when they knocked uh, 
Dave was it David's head off, and I all I thought right away was I thought exactly of the conversation that we had, the three of us had about Alien, where I think Ty, you were saying how like, you know, you you thought that you know the trick where they. Uh, you know, they, they swipe yep. the camera where somebody walks in front of the camera. I think um, you had said that you thought that was that was pretty great, though, because like, now the temptation now with current technology would be to, you know, really show the thing coming off in a number of shots. And then, you know, you really see it, you know, in a position where, you know, it can't really be. And so the second the head came off, just like in the alien film, I immediately thought of what you were saying. I was like, yeah, well, you, you obviously that's. You know, there's there's a, a comp there. Part of it's you know CG, or maybe it's a total uh, digital head. I'm not quite sure how they did that shot, but uh, I, I immediately thought of that conversation. It was <laughs> just it stuck out like you know, because it was it's the exact same moment, really. You know. Yeah, and isn't it also that David is D because he's the fourth android or something? There's something I read in the blogosphere somewhere that if you go through all the characters, all the robots, they all have like one letter. Their first name's oh. one letter on kind of thing. What were Ash. the other ones? Ash, Ash was the first. And, then, uh, and the next one Henderson was, was the actor, but... Uh, Bishop. Bishop, yeah. So Bishop, v. and then C was somebody else, and that makes ah. David D. Clever. Yeah. There's, um, <laughs> there, there is lots of stuff in this film, as you say, to have over a beer. Um, but I, I will say this. Like, there are some... We've spoke, you know... The 3D, I think, from Weta. The, the compositing from Fuel, we, we ran past it a little quickly, but I just wanted to point out that just think how hard it would have been to get those holograms wrapping around those people and compositing with them with contact lighting and stuff on them and that scanning, putting all that CG in and compositing it with the scan stuff. I think it's like really well executed. The volumetrics that uh, MPC did is a pretty good range of almost all of the major digital tricks that came to play by the various uh, companies that were on this. I think one thing that we should applaud is actually just the visual supervisor himself for managing that mm. and getting that um, that happening. And not only that, but selecting what's clearly a really good team to pull it all together. This was not um, this is not one of those cases of you know like it being all over the shop. Uh, I think Richard Stammers uh, was really playing well to the strengths of the individual companies and. Uh, did a really good job himself. We haven't really mentioned him, and I, I think it's a really outstanding job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what, right, they say it's there's about 1,300 or so digital uh, effect shots in the movie. Um, do you know, Is it was it MPC also, did they do the big sandstorm? Uh, they did well? most of the sandstorm. A little bit of it well, had some particles added in uh, by Rising Sun, but the primary mm-hmm. sandstorm was, as I understand it, MPC. Because the big... That was another shot that I thought was worth sort of signaling out uh, just as a, I thought, a really great sim was the, um, mm-hmm. the, the big shot where they're racing to get back to the, uh, to the ship and they're on the little, the little uh, go-karts or whatever. And that huge wall of uh, sand, I thought, you know, scale-wise as well as sort of, you know, the threat of that, like how opaque it was, I thought was really well executed and um, – you know, a really a nice-looking simulation. Yeah, I'd agree. Halon did the previs. Uh, Hammerhead did some stuff. We mentioned Rising Sun a second ago. Luma Pictures did... You know, there's a hologram that happens in her room, uh, I think it is, um, at one stage, and her boyfriend steps through it. Um, it's a... Uh, he has a rose under his chin kind of thing, a flower. Yeah, he, like, pushes mm-hmm. it through. You know. Yeah. Uh, so that was them. Uh, let's see, who else we not mentioned? I think Lola did some stuff. Well, Lola, you'd put on any picture these days, wouldn't you? If you had any actors in it. <laughs> uh, and then there's some other 
uh, companies. Reliance Media Work did some of the, uh, I think they called it stereo triage because obviously the epic footage, no matter how good it is, any uh, stereo footage needs to be massaged to line up and stuff. And also um, Identity Effects also worked on some of the stereo stuff. Can I get an opinion from you guys on what you thought the film looked like given this was shot on a couple of epics? It's one of the first, um, we're going to see this again from Spider-Man, but what did you think it looked like? I thought it looked great. I mean, I didn't. I didn't see any. Uh, I didn't have any issues with the image fidelity or quality. I, I had read something where it said that they, they, when they were shooting, they shot um, with the two epics, but they they were shot side by side, and there was no convergence on the rig. They set the convergence right. Actually, after that, the fact that's that not right? strictly true. No, what they did is they shot on a stereo rig, but they shot parallel, and someone may have interpreted that in an article to say they shot side by side thinking that that's what okay. parallel referred to then. But as you would know, Matt, parallel just means that they weren't toe-in, they weren't pointed in on the rig. Right. Uh, so the I, did, I read that and parallel. I didn't understand what no. that meant. I was like, I Yeah, no, it was in a classic it. stereo rig. I mean, there may have been a shot where they put two epics side by side. Certainly they flew through the clouds in Norway. I would dare say if I was doing that, I'd have mm-hmm. put them side by side. But most of the, the normal action was a stereo mirror rig uh, but shooting parallel, so you weren't pulling convergence or animating that on set. Uh, you weren't uh, aligning and towing in. And it's just of the two ways you can shoot parallel, for those of you listening that are less familiar, uh, you can shoot where both cameras are pointed literally in parallel, though the distance between the two lenses can still be adjusted to change the stereo effect. Uh, and then you could also shoot where you sort of point both cameras at what you're focused at. And you might think, well, gosh, isn't that how exactly I would want to do it? But there is a bunch of mathematics Mm. that can go down on whether you want to actually do that or not. And there are advantages and disadvantages for both. I will say Jim Cameron is a huge advocate of toe-in, and a lot of other people these days are big advocates of parallel. Um, I think the answer is probably there is no right or wrong answer, but they're just two different approaches. And but even if you shoot with a stereo rig and everything's perfectly set up in the best cameras in the world, you're going to need to do some work on the stereo because just the mirror itself is going to affect uh, things. And there was one scene in particular I know that was really, really complicated that they hit uh, Mystica with. And Mystica is a big iron box. Have you guys played with Mystica at all? Uh, no, I've I, not. I've had one, just a bit of a rat hole, I've had one good session with it um, in the US uh, on some stuff and I was really impressed with this. This is a big classic, what you'd think of as, as like a grading box, so that's not doing it justice. actually operates interestingly with two screens. So you have this massive UI and it um, has an optical flow engine in it that allows you to realign stereo and it does a lot more than you would think it would be able to do. Uh, in terms of being able to say, look, you know what, I want to adjust the stereo, but only in stuff that's in the back, not in the front. So instead of sort of an overall adjustment inside the frame, you're stereoscopically adjusting Mm. because maybe the beams, if you were to shoot sort of a a theoretical laser out of each lens, uh, even parallel, uh, if you went down 40 feet on the set, one might be a foot higher than the other kind of thing. And that's that's a very difficult thing to adjust because you can't move the... The, anything in the foreground, you just want stuff in the background to be a little lower in stereo height in the distance. And these are the kind of things that Mystica does. And it shot to fame when the guys on The Hobbit bought about a dozen of them. And it's now the sort of go-to box for high-end stereo productions. Mm. It's not cheap, but there are different versions of it. Um, and uh, Ocular was, of course, the other tool they used from the Foundry, which we've discussed 
more about in the past, which is a, a plug-in or a part of the Foundry's uh, Nuke kind of portfolio. Um, but yeah, there was this particularly hard scene. Sorry, when the, just when she came out of that med pod, and there's like lights flashing, mm-hmm. and she's staggering, and there's there's a, that, there's a lot of depth in those shots, and they were particularly complicated. I know the guys working on that in Mystica just spent forever sorting them. I mean, they're literally like an eight layer composites just to get the stereo. I think it was actually twelve layer composites just to get those um, sorted out. And uh, wow. yeah, that I. Uh, we shouldn't sort of step over that stuff because getting that stereo right, and um, this is their density effects, by the way, um, they did a really, really good job. Uh, Leo, there's the main guy, and we talked to him in the article uh, we've got on FX Guide. So, Mike, I, you know, I, I, I'd actually kind of rather pose that question to you only in that, like, you know, you are much more intimately uh, familiar with, you know, the epic and, and uh, you've got your own epic, you know, or a few of them now, right? And um, what what did you think of the look of it? Like, how did you have any... Um, what, how would how would you describe your your take on on the look of sort of three D stereo epics in this in this film? Uh, look, I thought it was great. I I watched it in stereo. I uh, I thought it really stood up well. I think that it's a quality visual technical film, and the epic stood up its ground well. But I would probably say one of the biggest advantages I imagine to this production is the size of the rigs, which we were sort of less aware of as an audience going up and down those corridors and moving around the way that they were, not in the big sets like the, the map room, but in other places, actually having smaller cameras with very high resolution uh, would have been a really, you know, big deal. And I thought all the nature stuff, there was no point at which I thought like the highlights were kind of clipping, um, especially the waterfall sequence, that kind of exterior, more brightly lit stuff. When you get into dark, dingy, sort of futuristic chambers you're never going to really hit the uh problem spots unless you are underexposing and you got noise but in neither case um i thought that was the case oh yeah i thought it looked really really good i've seen spider-man in 4k well it's not the whole thing but part of it and i gotta say that's sensational what i'm really looking forward to of course is having a chat with you guys when we see the hobbit in 48 frames 4k Hmm. uh whether we think that's going to be a a big deal or not but uh, that's a, a chat for another time yeah. um so we do always do this so let's do it now shots you didn't like things that you thought uh were a bit of a, a hash fail anything tie that I, bugged you i've got uh, oh, just i was just yeah. going to say that i think the thing that was the least successful for me and that actually was the thing that really kind of i just found jarringly bad was the old age makeup on peter wayland the uh, I didn't that I didn't buy that at all. Didn't I thought it didn't it didn't look it looked like old age makeup, and I, I was really disappointed in that. I didn't think it I didn't think they pulled that off very well personally. Yeah, yeah I think that's an interesting point uh, that it was jarred. I mean, yeah. my only thought was it was so it seemed so purposeful in its execution that I thought it maybe it was an attempt to say, you know, in some future time that people age slightly differently or something. I, I, it seems like his, fate, his feet weren't aged very consistently with the rest of his body. I, I tend to think that my feet get the least amount of attention on my body in terms of healthcare <laughs> products and stuff. So uh, I was kind of, you know, there's some deliberate shots of it, not deliberate, but there are clear shots of his feet when someone's putting slippers on him and stuff. And I was almost like, hang on, what's going on here? That looks like almost like a normal guy's foot. Um, so yeah, jarring was, a, was the word. Uh, I, I'd have to agree that was without a doubt in my mind the most oddly poor and and really for 
for film technology, you think about 2001, we had aging makeup and stuff in there, and we've had a lot of aging makeup over time. Um, it didn't feel like the art had been advanced. If anything, the art hadn't been fully respected. So I don't know what the story was there, um, but it didn't feel particularly uh, solid. And and even when he was in his sort of exoskeleton helping me along walking suit thing, I didn't really feel like he was um, he was provided with enough mechanical sort of something to make that a believable cell either or maybe the technology is going to be so seamless but i just can't believe that having some thing wrapped around you helping you walk would cover the natural uh way that the sort of shoulders would play and stuff i agree um matt was there anything else that you wanted to discuss about the show Really, just the last thing, I was kind of interested to see what you guys thought of it, because I didn't see it coming. I didn't expect it. I guess I should have seen it coming, but was the uh, the, the character that they kind of referred to in the, uh, I guess in the production, they called it the deacon, because it kind of looked like a, like a deacon's, um, you know, the, the hat that the bishop wears or whatever. Um, but uh, the, the sort of the offspring of the engineer and of the, the kind of the trilobite character that right. sort of pops out at the very end, the last shot in the film. I mean, I, you know, I think there's an element to that that, you know, some people might look at that and say, like, oh, it's kind of cheesy. And, but uh, I was curious how you guys felt about it or what you thought of it. I, I personally just, I, I thought it was a great ending. I didn't see that, I wasn't expecting that to happen. And I really, I thought it was kind of cool. It was like a nice sort of nod to the, in total to the franchise, like in a really straight up way. Yeah, it didn't bother me, Ty. Yeah, I mean, I actually uh, I li- I liked it as a as a final beat for the for the film. I I, I felt um, like the again it was an echo back from you know uh, the the first picture. I guess for me though, just just because I thought it was executed again and the biology of it and stuff was executed really well, I, I would have almost liked it to look even a little bit more like the alien. I, I thought that they were kind of suggesting it, and of course it has this little projecting jaw thing that that but i was waiting for the actual like alien you know that kind of proboscis with the teeth to come out and really mm-hmm. and why not i mean we, yeah, we know not? that's the point like why not just make it like oh there it is yeah, you know go the distance sure i yeah. kind of have it be yeah, a half step yeah. yeah i did i was wondering if you went to cut to the ship taking off only to discover that there was one that had got on board <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I did like her actually getting off the planet and uh, and flying off. Though, yeah, exactly how David would control things with no hands and. Uh, yeah, but anyway, I'm sure they'd reconnect them somehow. Would you? Would you, would you guys mind me asking? I'd just be curious, like uh, if if we could just go around once and say, like, do, do you guys have like a a favorite uh, shot or sequence with, especially from a visual effects point of view? Time. Yeah, I think I touched on it earlier, and and I think it struck me because it had such a uh, science fiction vibe to it, and that was the whole uh, crashing of the the Prometheus into the well, the, the, the derelict ship, as it was referred to in the in the original Alien, and and that the, just the way that the 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 ship exploded and came tumbling down onto this great landscape when everybody had the bubble helmets on. Those were the most science fiction, you know, 1960s bubble helmets. And I thought they were great, you know, and, and yeah. but, but didn't, you, didn't you still just, find it objectionable that just as in abyss, 
they stuck lights in the helmet so you could see the actor's face. Have you ever tried walking around with lights shining in your eyes? I mean, the last thing I'd want walking into an alien cavern is, so, can you turn these bloody lights off so I can see outside this helmet? Anyway, I sorry. just tell myself it's the, it's the bounce from the heads up displays. You know, that's what I always, that's oh, okay. why I convince myself to think it's okay. From a, on cinematically, they they definitely do. It just looks beautiful. That the, all the images from the film and the sort of gray, blue, and then the sort of bluish red in the suits that they have uh, in sort of different areas and the kind of arm, the little armor plating on the um, on the biceps. And I think those yellow lights. I mean, gets the perfect accent to that whole getup. Oh, there's really so many costume great design things like that. Just that shot where they're all going off in a line over from the ship to the first time that they check it out. The sort of kick ass. Like, oh yeah. Let's rock and roll, get out of here kind of thing. Um, i got to say, though, as much as I would really like to say the map room, uh, which I do think was spectacularly good, um, the the uh, whole uh, uh, visualization of the planet and solar system and stuff, I mean, that really was interesting. And, uh, and I saw a couple of versions of that, and every one of them up close and is just spectacular. I mean, on a DVD, Blu-ray, and you could park it on that. It's really, really good. I do think the opening sequence when the engineer goes into the water, um, as he starts to disintegrate, I just I remember being in the cinema and elated because this was going to be a film with really good visual effects. Like it's just set me off so well for the rest of the film that the imagery was going to be really strong and these were going to be really good shots and I wasn't going to be cheated and it would be composed well and it would be rendered spectacularly well. And I, I don't know, I remember actually saying out loud to the uh, Ian who was sitting next to me in the because we were in a preview screening, it's like, yep, this is going to be good. Um, so I'm going to give it to that <laughs> shot because I didn't have my eyes open for many of the other shots. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What about you? Oh, I, would, I think I would concur with, uh, with Ty. I think the crash uh, sequence was just, you know, off the hook good, in it, terms yeah. of the the scale, the dynamics, the um, both the kind of the the weight, the gravity. Um, you know, the the sound that like when that one shot looking down at the uh, sort of the horseshoe as it impacts onto the ground, and that just how it just really kicks up, and then it starts to arc over the in sort of you know starting to fall kind of along the length of the the horseshoe right around the curve that. That shot in particular that I think is in, featured in a lot of the trailers was so strong. And, and this is actually, I think, a visual effect shot as well, a CG shot. And it's not a, a, a complicated shot, but just because it's so damn cool is the shot of the, um, the engineer uh, with, like, the, the ribs kind of coming up over him in the seat and the, yep. the, the nose thing of the, the elephant trunk suit, or whatever. Yep. I mean, that, that shot, you know, sort of from that profile – just seeing that in the trailer and then seeing it in the film, it's just so darn cool. Like you, you see that and you're just like, man, this is it. Like, this is what, you know, this is what I've been wanting to see for the last X number of years, you know, and you know, whether or not it delivers the goods in the end, I think we've hashed out, but I think uh, shots like that are just really fun and, and uh, so visually interesting to look at. And I, I would say anybody who worked on this film doing any of the visual effects for any of these vendors, um, you know, regardless of the, uh, you know, back and forth. I think they should really be proud of the work they did. I think it's really top-notch. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, look, it's been great talking to you guys. I wish I had a beer. Um, we're going to be over at Sidgraf, so if anyone's at Sidgraf, we'll all uh, have a beer and recount. Uh, then hopefully there'll be some Prometheus sessions at uh, Sidgraf. I don't know if they're all, but um, it's been great talking to you guys. I, I love getting your perspective on things. And actually, we've had more requests of people saying, I can't wait to hear the VFX show about this film than I think we've had in a long time, if ever. So clearly a lot of people were, were keen to hear your views as well. So thank you so much, guys, for being with us. Um, Matt, where can people, what are, what are you up to? Where can people follow you? Uh, you can always find me on my website at mattwallen.com or uh, even though it's summer, you can always find me as well at Virginia Commonwealth University in the uh, School of the Arts. Big shout out to any of your uh, member students that uh, are listening. And Ty, what about you? Yeah, if, uh, if someone wants to connect by email, uh, they can go to alieninsect.com. That's my site. And uh, I'm on Facebook, Ty Rubin. Just search. And, uh, of course, I'm over at FX Guide where we have uh, a big story on Prometheus that was uh, – we've actually done, done 12, I mean, maybe even more interviews uh, for this. It might be now 15 uh, for this big piece we've done on Prometheus. I want to thank uh, Ian Fowles in particular who uh, was uh, writing that and uh, did a lot of the heavy lifting on, on that. And he's been doing interviews in London and, uh, and around the world. And we want to thank the visual effects artists that took the time to walk through and discuss stuff with us. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. You guys are incredible. And this film is uh, really spectacular. So congratulations to all the artists that worked on you. And thank to you guys for listening to the show and uh, downloading it. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you.